0: hey everyone and welcome to the liam McCollum show i actually recorded my first solo commentary episode um, you can go to youtube to see the video format if you would like but this is actually going to be the audio version if you prefer that format um, i review 1984 georgia wells 1984 with a little bit of an austrian perspective behind it uh, i hope you guys enjoy it here it is Hey everyone, welcome to The Liam McCollum Show. This is going to be my first solo commentary episode. Um, it's going to be interesting trying to get used to uh, talking to someone behind the camera, this hypothetical person. You know, talking to a mic is a different thing. It's difficult in itself when there's someone, you know, that you're talking to over Skype and you're also recording it. But um, this this will be interesting. I want to do it a lot more. Um, also, I've been looking at my analytics for the podcast for all of the interviews, and it says that you guys are out there. It says that I do have an audience, if you can call it one. Um, and if you guys came to the show through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, please just reach out. Um, I think it might be interesting just to communicate with you guys to interact. Uh, and if You just found me through an algorithm um on youtube or apple podcasts or whatever the platforms i use are apple podcasts spotify soundcloud youtube stitcher Uh, i believe that's it but if if you didn't come to the show through social media if you aren't a friend or family just uh maybe follow me on facebook twitter instagram i believe they're all under Liam McCullum, except Instagram, which is Michael Liam McCullum. So just follow me there and reach out. If you if you do follow me on Facebook, you will have seen that I posted a little bit about um, 1984, Georgia Wells, 1984, and um, an economist, Frederick Bastia. Um, I started a new job, and my Saturdays are pretty busy, so. Um, the 12-hour days, and I basically just challenged myself. You know, my ADHD self. I I get distracted very easily, so I'm jumping podcast to podcast. And I was like, hey, let's just listen to one audiobook. And Georgia Wells, 1984, lasted 11 hours, and I listened to the entire thing on my 12-hour day. And it really kind of stuck with me. So I actually made a Facebook post about it, and. Um, it just reminded me, there's there's a specific part within the book where basically this um, character named Goldstein, he is a, he's basically the resistance, um, the brotherhood. Uh, he... Is the resistance to Big Brother in um, the English Socialists of 1984, and there is a question of whether or not the organization actually exists. If you know they're just an outgrowth of the English Socialists who are born just to um, control. Dissidents within the party, but um, basically Goldstein. He's the leader of the resistance and he releases this book Um, It's basically a treatise on English socialism and how it was formed and um, Basically just trying to expose the philosophy that undergirds it So the main character Winston reads this book He finds a little sect of the resistance and he's given the book by Goldstein and there's a chapter within the book I think it's the third chapter of um, Goldstein's book. So a book within a book, both fictional. And um, the third chapter is called War is Peace, which is the English socialist motto for war. And basically Goldstein breaks it down. And I just want to read some um, quotes here because it really reminded me of this uh, pervasive idea. Um, pervasive yet destructive idea that war is good for the economy. And I made a post about it on Facebook, so you've probably already seen it if you follow me there. Here are some quotes from that chapter. Um, The first is, the essential act of war is destruction, not necessarily of human lives, but of the product of human labor. Then he goes on, war is a way of destroying materials which might otherwise be used to make the masses too comfortable and hence, in the long run, too intelligent. A floating fortress or like a battleship or something like that, for for example, has locked up in it the labor that would build several hundred cargo ships for trade. So basically, All these battleships that are sent off to foreign countries to be destroyed and then to be rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed. Instead, they could have been used to build cargo ships for trade, which would increase the wealth of others. As we know, the way that wealth increases is that I trade something that I value more. The way that wealth increases is basically that we both value what we have from each other um, more than what we're willing to give up. So if I trade with you, I'm gonna give something up for something that I value more. And that's how you increase wealth in society. This basically doesn't allow it to happen. War does not allow allow wealth to increase. Um, So the next quote is, the problem was how to keep the wheels of industry turning without increasing the wealth of the world. In principle, it would be simple to waste the surplus labor of the world by building temples and pyramids, by digging holes and filling them up again. And then I put in brackets work programs um, because that's essentially what they were and what they are. Uh, Research the New Deal and the destructive policies there. I might cover them in later episodes. But then he goes on, but this would provide only the economic and not the emotional basis for a hierarchical society. So he's saying, you know, in principle, it would be just as simple to continue to buy products and burn them up, but it doesn't create a psychological environment for people to be subjected to the state. It only creates the economic um, environment for it. So, and I just find it interesting because there were other parts within the book where he was breaking down hierarchy and his idea of hierarchy was pretty interesting. I don't remember exactly how he broke it down, but my conclusions from it were basically that When you collectivize society, when you um, mandate from top down, the hierarchy is actually much bigger and centralized. So there's less people who benefit from the hierarchy. There's only a few people at the top who are actually benefiting from that hierarchy. Whereas if you decentralize society, there are many hierarchies within society and there are many um, people who benefit from those hierarchies. So you might have you know, private businesses, worker co-ops, you might have um, nonprofits or whatever, but basically, there's are many of them rather than one centralized government. So a decentralized society is better and more profitable than at least for society, whereas a centralized government is more profitable for the people that sit up on top. I just found that entire idea interesting, especially since I believe George Orwell was a Democratic Socialists, but I have no idea how the terms have evolved over time. So another quote is, States are not fighting against each other at all. The war is waged by each ruling group against its own subjects, and the object of war is not to make or prevent conquests of territories, but to keep the structure of society intact. So the book basically explains that there are three super states within the world. Um, I believe Russia, United States, and Europe. Um, after the Cold War, they centralized, they became super states, and now they're all fighting over the same territories in Africa. And he explains that they all have the capacity, they all have the strength to keep their own, and they're never going to beat each other. But what ends up happening is in this infinite battle for these... Um, territories that will never actually be resolved. Um, the people within those countries are actually enslaved into the system where, as Orwell says, um, the wheels of industry are turning, but no wealth is created. And then in that Facebook post, I basically just went on to explain that, you know, there was an economist in the 1800s named frederick bastiat and i have his book right here and i want to read a little bit out of it he coined the broken window fallacy and i just want to read this right here so basically he posits that there's this guy named john q citizen and he is a shopkeeper his son comes along and throws a rock through the window um, and he explains a scene where you know some economists some keynesians come along and they say hey um, this is actually good for the economy because now there's money circulating. John Q. Citizen has to spend money, so therefore the economy is doing well. Um, the Glazer benefits from the kid throwing the rock through the window. Um, so, Frederick Bossiat, he, he goes on. Suppose it costs six francs to repair the damage. And you say that the accident brings six francs to the Glazer's trade that it encourages that trade to the amount of six francs, I grant it. I have not a word to say against it. You reason justly. The glazer comes, performs his task, receives his six francs, rubs his hands, and in his heart, blesses the careless child. All this is that which is seen. So, He comes up with this concept, and the the essay I'm reading from is called That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen. He comes up with this concept where basically, I think it was elaborated as the short run versus the long run in in future um, books. You can read Henry Hazlitt's uh, Economics in One Lesson. Um, He breaks down basically the same lesson in a more modernized version where the short run is what we see, The long run is what we don't see. There are some effects from a certain policy that we don't necessarily see, but it hurts us. So he says that... Yes, the glazer benefits um, and that that is what is seen in the present. But if, on the other hand, you come to the conclusion, as is too often the case, that it is a good thing to break windows, that it causes money to circulate and that the encouragement of industry in general will be the result of it, you will oblige me to call out stop there. Your theory is confined to that which is seen. It takes no account of that which is not seen. It is not seen that as our shopkeeper has spent six francs upon one thing, he cannot spend them upon another. It is not seen that if he had not had a window to replace, he would, perhaps, have replaced his old shoes or added another book to his library. In short, he would have employed his six francs in some way which this accident has prevented. Let us take a view of industry in general. As affected by this circumstance, the window being broken, the Glazer's trade is encouraged to the amount of six francs. This is that which is seen. If the window had not been broken, the Shoemaker's trade or some other would have been encouraged to the amount of six francs. This is that which is not seen. So you will hear from Keynesians, you will hear from um, teachers within it, you know, like a middle school history class that World War II pulled us out of the economy. Um, But what you don't see is that, or what's not explained is it was actually the demilitarization of society that actually caused the boom afterwards. So basically you were employing certain services towards something and then you removed it from it. And of course if you enslave people and then you free them you're unlocking more labor you're you're freeing people to actually produce more freely if you continue to destroy, if I continue to buy this book, for instance, if I continue to buy this book and set it afire and then continue to buy it, my wealth over time is going to de- decrease. Um, and that's what's happening. In no way did World War II pull us out of the Great Depression. If you know anything about me, I've been stressing for the last year that the economy is not stable. Um, Jerome Powell just admitted two days ago to CNBC that he will continue to... Um, pursue a policy of inflation, 2% inflation every year, um, which basically means that he will not tighten monetary policy. He will continue to keep interest rates artificially low, which will prop up um, certain areas of the market. So we know that a lot of what's going on is uh, is artificial. We know that there's too much demand and not enough supply of everything, um, especially since we just got out of a pandemic. I mean, we're still going through a pandemic. Unemployment is still really high. So this is the policy to keep a 2% inflation over time. They admit that. But as we know, they don't drop it equally among everyone, the way it works is that, you know, they'll type more zeros into a balance sheet. That's how they effectively print money. Um, They'll give it to Lockheed Martin, for instance. So uh, on the topic of war, when Lockheed Martin goes over, um, they produce a ship or they produce a plane or whatever, and this plane is destroyed. It actually doesn't harm them because the government, which is a monopoly on violence, can just charge someone. They can put more zeros in their balance sheet. It actually benefits Lockheed Martin and to have a plane destroyed because then they are paid through legislation or the Fed. So we actually see where um, this hierarchy that is centralized benefits a few. Whereas if we had freed up that labor, if we had allowed people to produce planes, for instance, for the average citizen, for private for private society, we would have, you know, had more jobs within private society. We would have had more planes. We would have allowed more citizens. I think there's actually a part in George Orwell where he's like, it is not the benefit of the state to allow private citizens to own planes because then they're free. So instead what they do is they create these airplanes for um, military practice and they just go over and destroy them. They keep the wheels of industry turning without actually increasing any wealth. So I just think that it's important to be cautious when you hear certain politicians or when you hear historians say that it is actually war that helps us out of recessions. So. I am very worried about the economy, but I'm even more worried that historians and politicians will use this as a reason to go to war. So um, we already know Donald Trump tried pulling out of Afghanistan and now um, the Democrats are pursuing a policy where you actually have to get approval from Congress to pull out of a war, even if it's not a war that was approved by Congress in the first place, which doesn't make any sense. Um, We also know that uh, the New York Times had to back track on a story where um, they basically accused that the current government knew that there were Russian bounties, Russian bounties on American soldiers heads. Um, and that was right after Donald Trump announced that he would pull soldiers out of Afghanistan. So basically that whole story served as an incentive to make Donald Trump remain in Afghanistan, um, to put more pressure on the Russians. So um, there's always constant pressure to continue to go to war. There was also, I believe, a bill... I don't know exactly what it was for. I think it was the reauthorization of military force. It came up again. Um, They were reviewing it, whether or not they would amend it or if they would scrap it. And uh, I think it got renewed. And basically, all of the Democrats who supposedly come from the anti-war party, um, all of them got money from... Lockheed Martin, and as we know, the Federal Reserve. So Jerome Powell, who admitted that um, he would pursue two percent inflation, we we know that basically the way that Lockheed Martin makes money is um, the Federal Reserve can go in and put more zeros in their bank in their bank account and on their balance sheet, and that's kind of what Orwell is talking about with these hierarchies, where if they're more collectivized, less people less people are actually benefiting and it's more centralized. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really worried about the economy, but just be aware. Uh, these politicians don't have your interests in mind. These Keynesians, I, I wanna actually read you an article. Um, if, if you think that I'm making it up, this is actually a very pervasive idea. So the Washington Post actually came out with an article that said, in the long run, wars make us safer and richer. And you know, he'll use these these concepts that, you know, like after World War II, we wouldn't have had nuclear energy or whatever if we didn't, if we didn't have this incentive to come up with new weapons. But he also he also mentions Thomas Hobbes um, in the case for the Leviathan government. But his entire article is basically like this post hoc fallacy which says that, oh, well, just because there was a war and there was a bunch of progress afterwards must mean that the reason there was progress was the war when we can clearly see that it's actually the demilitarization that causes it. it. I mean, when you free up labor, that is being wasted on destruction and on plunder, then of course, you're going to have progress. And then we also have history of um, investments in manufacturing. So so a lot of people will cite Japan or South Korea um, after World War II, and I believe the Korean War, as evidence that wars benefit society. But what they don't see is that we are also heavily investing in those countries after the war. They are being super demilitarized. So yeah, there's obviously heavily investment in um, industry afterwards. When when we look at our heavy involvement in Japan um, after World War Two, and our heavy investment in certain industries, of course, there's going to be heavy growth afterwards. And what's also not seen is that there was actually probably a lot of monetary inflation and QE going on as well. I'm not entirely sure. I don't know exactly what their policies were like afterwards, but we do know that they are having a currency crisis now. And with our really poor monetary policy, I'm sure that that had quite a bit to do with it. In um, here, I have some more I have some more data. So it was actually, um, some people say it's like the victor who actually benefits from a war, but America was spending 90% of its federal budget on its war effort after World War II, and we're spending 20% now. And then this article goes on to make the same exact point that I was. What do you think would have been better use of that money, building things that go boom and then disappear after one use or building something that lasts and can be used for many years? Um, And what's actually shown is that people who stay out of the war um, benefit much more. So Argentina, which basically remained neutral, um, but would fund people within the wars, they benefited a lot. Yeah, so basically um, this was a huge caffeine induced rant. Uh, I wanted to do this though. Um, I have a lot of anxiety towards speaking into a camera. I'm going to bring on a co-host eventually. It will be my friend Quinn Donaldson, uh, super intelligent dude. Um, We both kind of progressed in our thought process and our political philosophy the same exact way. Um, I don't believe we Disagree on much. Um, and then I think it might also be interesting to do some more um, commentary, more book reviews like this. I know that this doesn't necessarily count. I didn't read the book, I listened to it. Um, I beat myself up about that. Uh, still put it in my Goodreads as um, a book that I finished. Uh, don't tell anybody. But yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed this. Please try to support the show in any way. You can like it, share it. Um, as I said before, I'm on Spotify, I'm on SoundCloud, I'm on YouTube, Stitcher, parlor ThinkSpot, um, Apple Podcasts. Please support me. Please like the show. Please leave a review. And as I mentioned earlier, reach out to me on social media. This is my first video episode, so bear with me. Um, and I hope you guys enjoyed the content. Please give me some feedback, and I'll see you later.